Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Kimberly Robinson. And I'm Jordan Rubin. And we're recording this episode on July 16th, a week after the Supreme Court wrapped up its 2019 term. That was a first for the Roberts Court in going past the last week of June, but it was also the lowest number of opinions since the Civil War. Probably a combination of factors contributed to those two things happening, but most likely was probably the postponed arguments from March and April, which kicked the can down the road for those arguments to May. So So it was a term with a ton of blockbuster cases on abortion, DACA, presidential subpoenas, LGBTQ rights, and the common thread that we saw in all of this is that really, more than ever before, this term really emerged as the Roberts Court really being Chief Justice Roberts's court with him being the most powerful figure on it and clearly controlling the future of where it's going. Right. So Roberts was actually in the majority in all but two of the court's argued cases. That was in Ramos versus Louisiana and McGirt versus Oklahoma. Um, Just very briefly, in Ramos, the court held that the Sixth Amendment right to a unanimous jury applies to states as well as the federal government. And in McGirt, the justices found that part of eastern Oklahoma is Indian country for purposes of prosecuting crimes against American Indians. So... Ramos and McGirt, those are both cases that you covered first, Jordan. Anything stick out to you about the chief or any of the other justices there? Well, uh, the interesting thing about those cases is that they were both opinions written by Gorsuch, where he sided with the court's Democratic appointees over really, really strong concerns from uh, the government officials in the cases saying there are going to be all these disastrous consequences that flow if they wind up ruling for the defendants in those cases. And so I think it really said a lot about the difference between Gorsuch and the chief justice because it showed those are really two examples of Gorsuch's when he wants to rule in a case for a criminal defendant, if he thinks that's where the law is going, he doesn't really care what the consequences are. And that's what the opinions say. Whereas the chief justice, you know, we talk about him being an institutionalist, whatever that means exactly. I think it basically means him just being more moderate, right? And so we saw his moderation or whatever way you want to put that coming out in those cases, showing concerns about the consequences. You mentioned that Justice Gorsuch doesn't seem to care about the consequences as much as Chief Justice Roberts. That's something, though, that we didn't see in the LGBT cases, right? So there, Justice Gorsuch during oral argument was wondering what would happen. Mm -hmm. Um, Would there be massive social upheaval if the law was interpreted to protect LGBT workers? Um, But both he and the chief sign on to that opinion. And that was one of the surprising cases of the term for some court watchers. Jordan, what of the court's decisions was most surprising for you? So I would say that, um, I would say probably the most surprising vote did come in the LGBTQ cases, but not from Gorsuch, I would say probably from the chief. I actually didn't think Gorsuch's uh, vote was all that surprising. Um, It would have been, I would have been curious to see what his rationale would have been had he come out the other way, just given the way that he's voted in other cases. But with the chief justice, uh, he really hadn't he does not have a record or didn't before of siding with LGBTQ claims. So I thought that 
uh, is at least one of the most surprising votes of the term, if not the most surprising term, uh, votes of the term. And so I was thinking about Gorsuch's, what he said at that argument about a judge worrying about massive social upheaval, and then um, maybe I'm overthinking it. But in retrospect, I was wondering um, whether he wasn't talking about him, and maybe he was asking a question, maybe almost as a potential criticism of some of his colleagues, oral argument being, you know, where the justices argue with each other. But maybe that's overthinking it. What about you? What do you think was surprising? Um, well, I guess it's sort of your answer, but a, a little bit more too. I guess I wasn't surprised by any individual vote by the Chief Justice or from Gorsuch, but the fact that they kind of all the ones where they were in play, they seemed to cut towards the more liberal side was something that was surprising for me. Mm -hmm. I didn't, I thought, you know, maybe one of the cases, you know, abortion, DACA or LGBT rights would go, um, you know, one of them would cross over with the Democratic nominees, but I wasn't expecting them all to go that way. And then handing them out so closely together was, um, maybe made it seem more dramatic than it actually was. Yeah. DACA in particular, right? Especially from what the chief justice said at the argument, it didn't seem like he was going the way where he ended up. Yeah, you know, I was looking back at the oral arguments there, and he really didn't say a lot. There wasn't a lot for us to work from, um, just based off the oral argument. But, you know, you could definitely see him um, after the census case going that way. It wasn't a total shocker like I imagine Obamacare was. So uh, we've talked a lot about um, some of the liberal wins, um, but conservatives won some too. It seemed like it was kind of more of a mixed bag, although our guest may quibble with that right. way of framing. Um, can you tell us about some of the conservative cases? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, a lot of these came out really at the end of the term and maybe in some ways were overshadowed by some of the other cases that we've talked about, like the June medical abortion case or like the Bostock LGBTQ case. Um, but really on rulings on presidential power and religion, those are some pretty big wins that conservatives had been working on for a while. And presidential power, obviously, in the in seal law against the CFPB in terms of really giving the president more authority authority to have control over administrative agencies. Um, That's obviously been a huge part of the conservative legal project for a while. And then similarly, when it comes to religion, in the Our Lady of Guadalupe, Sisters of the Poor, Little Sisters of the Poor case, and the Espinoza case, I mean, that was really a unbroken string of wins when it comes to siding with religious claims on uh, education and the Obamacare contraception mandate and religious employers not having to comply with anti-discrimination laws and even in some ways that can wind up cutting back on, for example, the Bostock LGBTQ win. Mm-hmm. Um, so those were really uh, pretty big and you know should probably not be overshadowed by some of the other cases. Although I do think, um, you know, you mentioned the Roberts as an institutionalist, I think probably with the exception of the religious cases, we saw these in play in some of these important conservative victories, right? So in CETA law, um, you know, the court did side with kind of the conservative way of thinking, but it didn't go as far as it could have gone, right? Mm -hmm. So it didn't undo the CFPB. And, you know, if Biden wins the election, then... um, you know, it could actually end up being a win and that he could take out Trump's head of the CFPB. So um, that in particular just struck me as one of those, you know, more institutionalist decisions from the chief justice. So, you know, one other justice that um, I wanted to talk about this term was Justice Alito, who 
seemed, especially at the end of the term, to be particularly angry about um, the decisions that the court was. Yes, everything. Uh, I think particularly in the LGBT case, uh, he ended up actually, uh, along with Justices Thomas and Sotomayor, in the majority the fewest times uh, Mm. this term, even though he was part of the five-justice conservative majority. All three of those justices were in the majority in the low 70s, um, compared with, you know, the 90s for Chief Justice Roberts and Kavanaugh. So I think Justice Alito might be angry for a little while to come. Yeah, and... You know, this is one thing where, as you were talking about that and thinking about some of the dissents he had, this is one term where, you know, with all these blockbuster cases, it's too bad that it was remote because we missed out on what could have been some good opinion handouts and justices reading them <laughs> from the bench. And so just given how fiery a lot of them were going both ways just from, from reading it. Yeah, well, and and uh, Justice Alito in particular is very um, animated on the bench. Yeah, you don't have to guess what he's thinking. No. no. <laughs> so should we bring on our guest? Steve Vladek is the A. Dalton Cross Professor in Law at the University of Texas School of Law. His most recent Supreme Court argument was in this just-completed terms cross-border shooting case, Hernandez against Mesa. He's also the co-host of the National Security Law Podcast. Steve, welcome back to Cases and Controversies. Thank you guys so much for having me. So Jordan and I chatted a little bit about what's happening in argued cases this term, but there was a lot going on on the court's so-called shadow docket, particularly with sorry, particularly with regard to emergency applications. Why is it important to look at those cases as well as the argued cases? Well, I think, you know, that is a big part of what the court does just behind the scenes. I mean, so even just from a purely logistical standpoint, um, the court expends a lot of energy on these cases. I mean, we've seen just in the last, you know, few days as we're recording this, uh, a pair of 2 a.m. 5 to 4 orders from the court with with opinions. Um, But also, I mean, these orders often have just as much real world impact, if not more, as some of the high profile signed opinions. Um, So, you know, a really good example is President Trump's controversial border wall. Um, You know, there have been now multiple um, district and circuit court decisions holding that his use of military construction funds to build the border wall was illegal. Um, And yet he was able to do it because, you know, in July of 2019, late on a Friday afternoon, um, a 5-4 court, you know, issued a stay of a district court injunction. Um, We've seen this with asylum policies where, you know, stays, one sentence orders from the court that have stayed district court injunctions have allowed controversial changes to our asylum rules um, to go into effect at least for several years. And indeed, in almost all of these cases, um, with the Supreme Court at least not yet and potentially never resolving the ultimate merit. So, you know, I think both from the perspective of how it occupies the justices behind the scenes and from the perspective of the impact on the ground, these rulings are often just as big a deal um, as the cases that we are, I think, sort of instinctively more attracted to when they when they come down. And so speaking of these death penalty rulings that we got this week, it's really been a frenzied week for all this death penalty litigation, and it's going back and forth late at night, and it seems like it's always happening sort of at the last minute. And we don't always know exactly what the justices are doing or exactly how they're they're voting here. In this instance, we knew how they were voting. But just as someone who's been tracking this, Steve, I mean, do you think that there's a better way for the court to handle these cases as they're coming up? So I think... I think- there are really two different problems, Jordan, that I see with how the court is 
is tackling these disputes. Um, I think the first is, you know, there could be more transparency. I mean, so just if nothing else, you know, even a one paragraph opinion um, that explains why a stay is granted or denied, especially when there are concurrences and dissents, I think would be enormously helpful as opposed to just a one sentence order. Um, and indeed, that used to be the norm. I mean, so, you know, in the in the old days when most of this was resolved by individual justices in chambers, um, it was commonplace for the justice to write a signed opinion that explained why he or she was or was not granting the requested relief. So I think first things I'd love to see a little more explication from the court. And part of that's because then we can have a sense of, you know, which factors were so important. Um, is the court granting a stay because of the high likelihood of success on the merits? Is the court granting a stay because of the balance of the equities if it didn't? Um, we don't know. And I think it's, you know, it's not just that we don't know, it's that the parties don't know and the lower courts don't know. And so without that kind of transparency, just in the underlying decision, um, a lot is left to be desired. And then two, and just sort of more generally, I think the other piece of this is I would like to see where possible um, more, I think, solicitude on the court's part for maybe even having argument on some of these applications. You know, lower courts are, I think, regularly inclined to hold even unusually timed oral arguments in contexts in which they actually find or believe that the arguments might be helpful. Some of these emergency applications really are emergencies where it's like, you know, 16 hours from filing to resolution. But some are actually, you know, a week to 10 days, two weeks even. I mean, the the Florida voting rights case that the court um, issued a, a ruling in on Thursday, you know, that one had been on the court's docket for several weeks. So I'd like to see the justices both give us more um, clarity in why they're ultimately ruling the way they are and where possible try to actually incorporate aspects of the, you know, normal appellate process um, that usually get short-circuited in this context, especially now that they've done the remote argument by telephone thing. You know, I think that the the historical obstacles to doing that, I think, have been largely brushed away by the fact that they've done it now. Um, and I think, to my mind, at least, you know, moderately successfully. So you mentioned the Florida voting rights case that um, came out today. Um, it looks like it's a six to three ruling. Um, but that's actually one thing I had a question for you about. You were mentioning that sometimes it's difficult um, to even know who who's voting in these cases, that there aren't a lot of transparency. So I say it looks like it's a six to three ruling um, because the court held that the uh, they weren't going to halt a Florida law passed in the wake of the state's constitutional amendment allowing convicted felons to vote. Um, the law at issue requires these voters to pay all fines, fees, and restitution before voting. The, that was what the one-line order said, but then we have a dissent in which three justices rule. But can we be confident that that is the ruling, 6-3, or are justices not required to say that they descend from an order. Yeah, they're not required to. And so we can't, we can't be confident. There's always this dance that I think we all go through uh-huh. where we say, you know, three dissents were publicly noted, um, <laughs> implying that maybe not all of them were. So this is, I think, a, a larger problem with how the court memorializes things, which is, you know, except when it issues a so-called signed opinion, um, we are usually guessing about the vote count. I mean, there's one scenario where we're not. If there are four noted dissents, we have a pretty good idea um, that the other five justices all go the other way. But when the court issues an order that's not signed, or whereas in like the Wisconsin voting rights case back in April, or the first death penalty case from this week, from Monday night, we get a per curiam opinion 
Um, we actually can't be sure that every justice who isn't listed in a dissent is in the majority because we don't have the normal, you know, Chief Justice Roberts delivered the opinion of the court and was joined by justices so-and-so. And so, I mean, I actually think that would be an incredibly modest innovation, would simply be to, you know, note the vote count. Um, but I think the court would find that controversial, too, just like they don't note the vote count when they grant or deny certiorari. Um, right. That, you know, we never know how many justices voted to grant certiorari unless we know that there are three dissenters. Um, right. Because it's only when we have three dissents from a denial of cert that we know that there were three votes to grant. Otherwise, we're just guessing. So, you know, I think this is part of, to me, a larger piece of the sort of inherent um, difficulty of looking behind the curtain. Um, and of sort of, you know, being left to sort of read tea leaves. I guess, you know, the vote count vexes me a little less than the complete lack of explanation about why the court is doing what it's doing. And so, you know, yeah, we have no idea if Justice Breyer um, dissented in the Florida case, um, but we also have no idea why the justices in the majority, five or six of them, um, you know, didn't, didn't agree with the, with the applicants, um, that they were entitled to lift the stay of the 11th Circuit. And I, to me, at least, the latter is a much bigger problem than the former. So putting it in terms of a, a dance that we do, I think is um, a, good way, a good way to put it. And, uh, you know, I have seen you noting this before because people, you know, and I think people could be forgiven for looking at this Florida case and calling it a 6-3. And so, uh, you know, I've always thought that it's a good idea to be sort of pedantic about it and make sure that it's just saying that the justices are only either noting or not noting their dissents. But the more I'm thinking about it, you know, I really wonder why it is that we have to do that. It's almost a metaphysical thing. I mean, to say that the justice <laughs> didn't dissent. I mean, why can't we just look at this and say, if they're telling us, they're like, no, no, maybe we did dissent. Well, it's like, well, I'm reading this thing and it's only saying these three people dissented and you're not on it. So it's like, why don't we just start saying what they're telling us and then let them figure something else out if they want a different arrangement? So, I mean, I guess, you know, the, the, at the risk of, of, of making the argument against myself, um, you know, I, I do think that there's something unseemly about, for example, Congress requiring the disclosure of vote counts um, on the Supreme Court. Because, you know, first of all, I think the court would just ignore it. Um, where in any case in which the court didn't want to disclose, you know, they'd issue one vote behind the scenes and then they'd all agree publicly to have a, you know, to, they'd be unanimous even if they were five to four. Um, so, you know, I think more than that, I think, you know, the justices should be the ones who keep their own counsel on this. I just think that they ought to understand the importance, not just to folks like us who are trying to read the tea leaves um, and are trying to sort of explain this to everybody else who's out there, um, but also to lower courts mm -hmm. um, who, you know, I think have, I mean, w one of the real phenomena I've seen in the last couple of years is a, is a enormous disconnect between how lower courts are treating many of these day applications and how the justices are. And I think at least part of that disconnect is because the justices, or at least a majority of them, really are applying the, the old sort of doctrine differently, but they're not telling anyone that they are. And so I think, you know, that's what causes the chaos here where, you know, because the court just isn't inclined to explain itself and doesn't feel compelled to explain itself, um, we are left to wonder. And, you know, for folks who don't want to wonder, that's a real problem. And there's been, you've talked a lot about how these problems are exacerbated under the Trump administration um, that keeps, that's 
making more of these emergency applications. Can you tell us a little bit about where we stand on that? Yeah, this is uh, this is gonna be on my tombstone, I think, as the you know the, <laughs> the thing people remember about me. Um, so you know, I, I started this project about a year and a half ago because it just seemed like the Trump administration was um, asking the Supreme Court for emergency relief more often than seemed typical. And it turns out, especially after this week, um, the numbers are pretty uh, um, substantial. Um, so the the Trump administration in I guess what the better part of three and a half years now um, has asked for 34 stays or 34 lifts of stays um, from the Supreme Court. Um, it's asked for cert before judgment nine times, and it's asked for uh, writs of mandamus directly against district judges three times. Um, and in the abstract, those numbers probably don't sound like anything. But just you know, by comparison, over the prior 16 years, where we had two terms of a Republican administration under George W. Bush, two terms of a Democratic administration under Barack Obama, um, the Justice Department asked for eight stays huh. in 16 years, so one every other year. Um, I think it was three petitions for cert before judgment um, and no writs of mandamus. Um, and, you know, just in the current term, which is still going and will go through the beginning of October, you know, the Trump administration has asked for 13 stays um, from, you know, from the Supreme Court. Um, that's a lot. And, and it's a lot, not just like in absolute terms, it's a lot of work for the justices. It's a lot of time spent on these applications. Um, and, you know, I think folks are going to disagree about the causes of this uptick and whether it's justified. Be that as it may, I mean, the, the notion that, the, the, that I want sort of, uh, that I hope we all have common cause on is it is, it is shaping the court's docket um, in ways that I think are pretty significant. I mean, this is a court that decided 53 signed cases during the current term, you know, and we're up to 13 stay applications just from the Trump administration. That's a substantial percentage. It's time consuming. And I think it has other effects that are not necessarily salutary. Yeah, it's not just, um, it's not just time consuming for the justices. It's time consuming for SCOTUS reporters, too. So... <laughs> yeah, let's keep the priorities here. But so pushing into kind of the qualitative aspect of that, Steve, I mean, what do you say to someone who puts forth this argument? The reason that the Trump administration has needed to bring such a high volume of these applications is to combat this uh, ongoing judicial resistance against them in the lower courts. So, I mean, that's the most common um, response. Um, and I think it's 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 obviously consistent, I think, with how this is portrayed by the president and his supporters. Um, I'm not sure the data supports it. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, these cases where the administration's going to the Supreme Court for stays are all cases where they've been turned down by multiple lower courts. So not just a district judge, but usually also a court of appeals panel. And as much as folks might want to vilify the Ninth Circuit, you know, the Ninth Circuit's only responsible for a, a minority of these cases um, in the aggregate. So, you know, I think, I mean, if the entire federal judiciary, which we hear so much about how President Trump has put his stamp on it, if the entire federal judiciary is engaged in a revolt against President Trump, yes, that would be one thing. Um, but I actually think what's going on is a little more subtle, that there's some hostility to President Trump, that some of that is as much about the policies that he's pursuing as it is about the judges and that, you know, these policies for better or for worse, lawful or not, are pretty dramatic breaks from the status quo in some cases. Um, but also that I really do think there is this growing disconnect between how the lower courts are approaching the question of should we grant emergency relief to the government and how the Supreme Court is. And I think the biggest sort of hook for that disconnect is the notion of balancing the equities. 
um, right? That the lower courts still look not just at the harm to the government from putting a policy on hold, but also the harm to those who would be affected by the policy if it were allowed to go into effect. And that has seemingly disappeared from the calculus in the Supreme Court, where, you know, the fact that the government's policy is enjoined is sort of conclusive on the equities point, And all the justices are doing is making a predictive assessment on the merits. Um, you know, one might be able to defend that as a normative ideal. The problem is that that's not the doctrine the court has said we're supposed to be applying. And so I think the, you know, the, the real reason to me why there's such a disconnect here is not anything about um, hostility to Trump. Um, it's a much more subtle, but in some ways, I think, more structural shift in how these judges are deciding when it's appropriate to, you know, bypass regular order, to jump over the queue and to basically allow, you know, a policy to go into effect, to prevent discovery, to do whatever they can to, you know, sort of disrupt the flow of ordinary litigation in the lower courts. So, okay, if we were to look at all these things on the shadow docket and also at argued cases this term, what do you think the takeaway is? Um, I mean, I, I think, it, if anything, I think adding the shadow docket to the story just reinforces what a stunningly remarkable term the chief justice had. Um, that, you know, all of the takes about this being the chief justice's court, I think, are only reinforced if we bring in the order docket. I mean, if anything, it's, it's even a bigger deal there because, you know, as opposed to a couple of cases where you see Justice Gorsuch um, join with the progressives, you know, in um, Title VII, obviously, and also in McGirt, um, the only orders, the only controversial divisive orders um, in which the progressives prevailed all term were where the chief switched sides. Um, so especially like the South Bay order um, in the California church COVID case. Um, and so, you know, I think it, in one sense, it really does reinforce I think one of the common takeaways from this term, which is, oh boy, is this John Roberts's court? Um, but the sort of the narratives that are focused on the argued cases that pitch this more as a mixed bag, right, with some progressive wins and some conservative wins, I think is not quite as accurate once we expand it to encompass, you know, all the stuff behind the curtain. Um, you know, with the exception of that one, you know, the California church case. Um, you know, I think the the conservatives basically had a fantastic term on the shadow docket. Um, and almost all of the divisive cases um, went in favor of the conservative majority. Um, that, you know, the only two that didn't, one was the South Bay COVID case where the chiefs flipped. Um, and the other was a very early application from the federal government for a stay in the federal death penalty case. Um, where we had three noted dissents, um, right, Justices Thomas, Alito, and Kavanaugh. Um, I'm sorry, Thomas, Alito, and Gorsuch. Um, but, you know, where clearly at least one of the conservatives switched sides. Um, but beyond that, I mean, on immigration policy, on the border wall, on, you know, the death penalty, um, on the Wisconsin voting case, on the Florida voting case, you know, it was, a, I think, a really, really one-sided um, set of results if we look at, if we add that part of the docket to the story. And so, Steve, before we let you go here, uh, it's always good to look back on the term, but you're going to be arguing right at the beginning of the court's term in October. You want to give our listeners a little preview about what you're doing and whether you have an idea of where you're going to be doing that from? <laughs> 
Um, sure. So this is this is actually the very first case that was set to be argued that was postponed um, from the March session. Um, it's a pair of cases coming out of the the military justice system, um, and it's sort of a, an intricate statute of limitations question about old uh, sexual assault convictions in the military. Um, I suspect that's about the extent of which most people will be interested in it. But um, so the the argument's currently set for uh, the second Tuesday of the October sitting, which I think is the thirteenth. Um, you know, I, we don't have any additional guidance beyond what's public about how the October session is going to go, um, right? These are just the cases that were postponed from March and April. Um, but at this point, guys, I mean, if I had to guess, I suspect I'll be doing my argument from the same chair from which I'm currently <laughs> talking to you. Um, I, I mean, I'll, I'll probably stand up. You know, I, I just, I don't, I don't see any sign that the court is going to be in a position to resume in-person arguments um, as early as October. And, you know, I can't imagine that the justices will want to be online again, but I also don't think they're going to have the luxury that they had at the end of, you know, the current term of sort of postponing a bunch of arguments to give them time to make that decision. You know, the beginning of the term is different from the end of the term. Um, and, you know, if I had to bet money, um, which I won't, um, you know, I, I, I think the odds are that at least the, the first couple of argument sittings are definitely going to be remote. As for whether there will be any toilet flushes during them, you know, I, 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 I leave that to you. <laughs> Let's hope they learn their lesson. The solution to that, as always, is to televise them, and then it won't be an issue. <laughs> well, I mean, I, you know, I've, I, mean I've, I have long been a, a strong supporter of live streaming of the oral arguments, um, you know, and I, it, it strikes me that the snags we saw in May were not a function of live streaming. They were a function of remote arguments. Mm. Um, and so if, if nothing else, you know, hopefully this finally does, you know, um, break the logjam of, of sort of pressure against live streaming, even when they're back on the bench. Um, you know, if, if, if for no other reason, so my grandmother can listen to me argue in October. <laughs> Come on, Court, do it for, for his grandmother. Do it for my grandma. That's right. <laughs> well, that's a, that's the, there can't be a better reason than that. Um, well, thanks, Steve, for uh, breaking down all of this uh, with us and uh, coming back on the show. We appreciate it. Of course, thank you, guys. And you know, um, I'd say I'd say you know get some rest. But the way the court is going, this is a uh, this is not going to be a, a restful summer. No. Well, th- thanks, thanks. <laughs> right. So one of the things that um, we haven't mentioned, but that. Uh, Steve alluded to is the fact that the Supreme Court released its October argument sitting, and it includes all of those cases that uh, had been postponed from last term and doesn't include any new cases, including the Obamacare case. So we are likely not even going to hear the case until November. So we certainly won't have an answer before the 2020 election. Okay. And also, as uh, Steve alluded to, and as this week has shown with all these uh, death penalty and voting orders, we'll be uh, updating you with news as the summer goes on. Um, If this week is any indication, it's uh, not going to be a quiet one for better or worse. So one other thing that happened this week, just because uh, there's not enough going on, is that there was literally a Supreme Court police vehicle on fire outside of the court uh, yesterday on Wednesday, you know, just while I was tracking what was going on with all of the death penalty cases, uh, someone who was walking by the court posted a video to Twitter uh, with the line, um, there's a car on fire at SCOTUS and showed a video of that uh, just parked right outside the court along the side. Um, And then 
Someone else got a statement from the court uh, saying that an individual poured an accelerant on and set on fire an unmarked Supreme Court police vehicle parked on Maryland Avenue near First Street Northeast. The car was totally burned and an adjacent court vehicle was also damaged. The individual suffered burns in the process. He was taken into custody by Supreme Court police and was transported by ambulance for treatment of his injuries. Well, in addition to updating you on the ongoing news at the court, we're going to feature a sort of summer reading list, highlighting some interesting books, articles, podcasts, and even movies on the highest court of the land. Next week, we'll kick it off with uh, The Fight, which is a new movie about ACLU attorneys. Um, Jordan and I chatted with... uh, many of those attorneys about their battles against the Trump administration and things like voting rights, abortion, immigration rights, and LGBT rights. So a lot of the things that we've been talking about all term. Yeah, that was a really uh, fun interview. So I'm looking forward to that episode coming out and everyone getting to hear that too. And until then, you can follow along with all the latest Supreme Court news at news.bloomberglaw.com. Thanks for listening. Office-based startup WeWork has officially postponed a plan to go public. WeWork is having trouble finding investor demand at one-third of the $47 billion price tag. The real concern is Adam Newman, the CEO. Everything is on him. His performance will determine this. What went wrong? We'll take you inside the company with interviews from people who helped build WeWork and exclusive tapes of internal meetings where Adam talks to his employees in ways he'd never speak in public. None of us want to look back and say, I could have done more. This could have been bigger. This could have been better. That's not acceptable. You do not get a chance like this again. None of us do. This is a new podcast from Bloomberg Technology called Foundering. Check us out. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.